I've got a little question for you. How would you describe someone who has real, genuine faith? You'd probably begin by simply saying, well, they believe in God. They worship regularly. And they're faithful in the practice of their faith. But where do you go from there? Well, there's a little book in the New Testament that paints a picture of a man of faith this way. A man of faith is someone who welcomes testing, asks God for wisdom, is single-minded, sees beyond material circumstances, perseveres under trial, gets the most out of life, never blames God, doesn't yield to sin, is not deceived, is quick to listen to God, is slow to anger, proves himself a doer of the word, is blessed in what he does. He bridles his tongue, he acts upon his faith, and is no respecter of persons. He obeys the law, shows mercy, does more than pray, shows faith by his works, and is consistent in his speech. Isn't jealous, isn't selfishly ambitious, isn't arrogant, is peaceable, gentle, full of good fruits, without hypocrisy. He asks God for what he needs, is faithful to God, is not a friend of the world, he's humble. And he submits to God. He knows when to mourn. He doesn't speak against his brother, doesn't judge his brother. He trusts God for tomorrow and makes all plans contingent upon God's will. He doesn't trust in riches. He doesn't cheat others. He doesn't live a life of wanton pleasure. He's patient, doesn't complain. Patterns his life after heroes of faith. Doesn't have to prove his honesty. Sings praises to God. He ministers to others. He confesses his sins. He prays for others. And he turns sinners to God. That's 50 descriptions of a man of faith. And they all come from the little book of James. You know, I think it's safe to say that the theme of James is therefore genuine, honest, saving faith. And it's obvious that James sees faith in active terms. Faith is not just something you have, it's something you do. And to emphasize the need for action, he uses 54 imperatives in 108 verses. So if we would be people of genuine, honest, saving faith, we need to study the book of James. A book that begins with a simple greeting that identifies the author and the recipients. James 1.1. James 
a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This little letter was written by James. But which James is it? You know, two of the apostles were named James. James, the son of Alphaeus, who may have also been a brother of Matthew. And James, the son of Zebedee, who we know was the brother of John. Scholars do not believe, however, that either of the apostles was the author of James. Most are convinced that the author instead was the brother of someone else. He was the brother, actually the half-brother, of Jesus. Now, the author doesn't name drop. He doesn't brag about being the brother of Jesus. He simply identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was Jesus' half-brother was apparently of little consequence to him. That Jesus was his Lord apparently meant everything to him. But Jesus hadn't always been his Lord. He grew up in the household with Jesus and actually thought his older brother had gone off the deep end when he began his ministry. It wasn't until the resurrected Christ appeared to him that he realized who his brother really was. And after he came to faith in Jesus, he became the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church. He became known as James the Just. And it was said he had knees like camels because he was on them so much in prayer. That's the James who wrote this letter. And the letter is addressed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, there's no doubt this is a reference to Jewish people who had been scattered around the world through conquests and captivities and deportations. But most agree that he specifically had Jewish believers in mind. You see, James was an elder in the Jerusalem church, a church made up primarily of Jewish Christians. And many Jewish believers had been scattered by persecution. In fact, they were a doubly persecuted people. Gentiles hated them because they were Jews, and the Jews hated them because they had become Christians. So they were obviously in need of encouragement and instruction to remain a people of faith. Now, we shouldn't discount this letter as only applying to Jewish believers, for aren't all believers in Christ dispersed into the world and in need of encouragement and instruction? And don't we all face trials because of our faith? James begins his letter by acknowledging that fact and by pointing out the purpose for the trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells us to face trials with joy. And we might as well because trials will come. He doesn't say if. 
He says, when. And since Paul tells us to rejoice in all things, we have no choice but to face trials, all kinds of trials, with joy. That's not to say it's easy. But understanding why they come helps. And James makes it clear that trials come to test our faith. Now, I realize some may suggest they would just as soon not have their faith tested. But without trials, faith can take a holiday. Without trials, we don't even know if we have faith. We may believe we have faith, but we really don't know we do until it's tested. By the same way, I didn't know how strong I was or wasn't until I started working out. Now, I didn't use free weights. I used the machines because they seemed a lot safer. But even with them, I soon found out I couldn't do many reps, especially if I set them on the highest level. Eventually, I got there on most of them. Because a tested muscle, like a tested faith, gets stronger and produces endurance. Now, obviously, James isn't talking about a physical fitness program. He's talking about our spiritual condition, but I think the parallels are obvious. God wants us perfect. He wants us complete. And the word means sound in every part, lacking in nothing. And the way we get there is through various trials. If you want a perfect body, you test every part. And then you work on that part. Now, YouTube has a funny clip of a bodybuilder showing off his right arm saying that he's been performing an experiment. He wanted to see what would happen if he only exercised one half of his body. He ended up with a bicep four and a half inches larger on one side than the other, and obviously looked ridiculous. Well, trials are a major part of God's spiritual fitness program for us. And since he doesn't want our spiritual lives to be out of balance... His fitness program includes a variety of trials. And some of them actually target our weak spots because those are the areas that really need to be strengthened. Just this week, or last week, I talked to a a trainer about a noticeable, noticeable lack of balance I've been experiencing Well, he explained that at 50, men start losing muscle, and by their 70s, they've lost over 60% of their muscle mass. I didn't check his figures, but I think they're probably accurate. You know, obviously, we can't stop the aging process. But there are things we can do to address some of the effects of them. And he gave me some simple exercises that will strengthen the muscles that help keep me in balance, and one that may actually keep Marilyn from having to remind me to pick up my feet. Now, I I really don't enjoy exercising. They call it working out. You know, it's work. It's hard work. Sometimes it's even painful work. 
And if I use a piece of equipment at the gym that puts an unusual amount of strain on a particular muscle, I have to decide how to respond to it. I've got to decide whether I should push on through the pain to the elusive gain or back off before I hurt something. You probably know what I do most of the time. But you know, that's where the need for wisdom in exercising comes in to play. Wisdom in exercising and wisdom in facing trials. We need to know how to respond. James continues. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's not always easy to know how we should respond to a specific trial. And before we can respond properly, we need wisdom to understand the situation. You know, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by trials, even when we're convinced that they may have come for a good reason. And even if we understand that God can use any trial we're facing to strengthen our faith, whether he specifically sent it or not, it's still hard. So how do we sort it all out? How do we get the most benefit from a trial? How do we evaluate the situation and determine the best course of action? Well, that's where the need for wisdom comes in. Wisdom, which differs from knowledge. The word for wisdom comes from the root meaning to think clearly. And it takes clear thinking to properly apply knowledge to a specific situation. Now, if we know God's word, we have all the knowledge we need to face trials. What we sometimes lack, however, is the wisdom to apply that knowledge to the situation we're facing. So how do we get the needed wisdom? James tells us to ask for it. Apparently, our first response to trials should not be to pray for strength. It should be to pray for wisdom. And do note that when James tells us to ask for wisdom, he's specifically telling us to do so when facing trials. He's not just giving us a general admonition to ask God for wisdom. He's telling us to ask for wisdom when dealing with with the trials of life. And then note he does tell us that God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, will give it to us. If we ask for wisdom when facing trials, God won't respond with, what's the matter with you? Can't you figure it out on your own? You should know how to handle that. No, no, God doesn't belittle us. He doesn't play games with us. If we want to know how to handle a situation, he will make certain we know how. 
He'll make known to us what he wants us to do. Now, that doesn't mean we'll hear a voice from heaven declaring in uncertain terms what we should do, but he will bring a scripture to mind or send a godly friend with advice or open a door. However he chooses to do it, he will make known what he wants us to do. James gives us that guarantee. But we've got to be willing to follow his instruction. We've got to have enough faith in him to do what he says. And that's what James means when he says we must ask in faith without any doubting. He's not telling us we must convince ourselves that God's going to give us something before we ask for it. It's not a name it and claim it kind of promise. It's not saying that we need to conjure up enough faith before we can get what we really want. To ask in faith simply means we will trust God's answer. That we've got faith in him and we will do what he says. Doubting, therefore, is not so much unbelief as it is an unwillingness to yield to God's will. A double-minded man wants to do God's will, but he also wants to do what he wants to do. James says he's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He's hit by a wave of faith and really wants to do what God wants him to do. But then he's hit by a wave of self and is overwhelmed by his own desires. He can't decide what to do, even when God has made his will known. A man who wavers between obedience to God's will and disobedience is unstable. And because of that, God won't be able to bring into his life the benefit that could have come from the trial. And even though it may sound like he's asking for wisdom when he cries, why me? He's generally not seeking to understand why the trial came to him. He's just wishing it had come to someone else. A man of faith. Trust God. He wants to understand God's purpose in the trial and has determined beforehand to do whatever God reveals must be done to benefit from the trial. He just needs wisdom to be able to discern it. He needs wisdom to turn trials into spiritual food, something that's going to nourish him and make him strong. Now, again, we all have trials, and we need wisdom to grow through them. Experiences themselves teach us nothing. They can simply be taillights to show us where we've been. Growth and maturity come through the right handling of experiences and trials, and all of us can find approval by the proper handling of them, rich and poor alike. Let's read on. But let the brother of humble circumstances 
glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Every believer must be able to see beyond his circumstances. The poor believer and the rich believer. The poor believer must be able to look beyond his poverty. He must be able to see his high position in Christ, the wealth of his spirit, and his spiritual heritage. He must be able also to trust the promise of daily provision from his heavenly Father, even in the midst of his poverty. In a similar way, the rich believer must be able to look beyond his wealth. He should glory in his true wealth, not in the riches that will fade. And if an economic trial should come, if he should find himself humbled by a turn of events, he should thank God for the reminder of what he has that will never pass away. He should thank God for the reality check. Because it's hard to keep priorities and perspectives on life right when things are going well. In fact, Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, he did add that doing so was not impossible, that nothing is impossible with God. But the rich man must handle the trial of wealth properly. And believe it or not, wealth is a trial. Wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing or the key to happiness. Both rich and poor find happiness the same way, by becoming what God wants them to be. And that means both must go through God's fitness program. Both are tested by trials, and both find approval by right responses to trials. In other words, it's the man who perseveres under trial that will be blessed. He will find real happiness in life. He will find satisfaction. And even more importantly, he will find approval. The word approved had an interesting use in ancient Greece. It was stamped on the bottom of green pottery after it passed inspection. But a piece of pottery must go through the fire before it can really be approved. And if a piece stamped approved didn't make it through the fire, it was destroyed. The same is true of us. God has fashioned each of us in a way that can, by his grace, 
be stamped approved. But we've still got to go through the fire to be made into vessels fit for the kingdom and useful to him. The fire is never pleasant, but through it, we will find approval. And through it, we receive the crown of life. A man of real faith is the one who trusts the Lord even through the fire. May we all be such men or women of faith. Only trust him and he will save you. He will save you now. Let's express our confidence in his saving ability and our determination to trust him in all things. Let's stand together.